Good evening. This evening in this talk in a series on major issues in public health, I'm going to talk about obesity. Obesity is not new. Uh, it's been around for as long as we have records, but it has increased and it is increasing. So should we worry? And if so, what should we do about it? This lecture will cover the epidemiology of obesity, the health impacts of obesity, interventions at an individual level, and interventions at a societal level. And running through all of this is a very strong belief that there is absolutely no reason why people should feel any shame or embarrassment about obesity. It is purely something to be concerned about from a medical point of view. And this will take a purely uh, medical approach to this. And I've illustrated this uh, by this fine, uh, proud statue of the great uh, author Balzac by Rodin. If you look at obesity in the UK, over uh, around two decades, uh, BMI, which is body mass index, is uh, one of the measures of obesity, over 30, which is the measure or the kind of technical measure of obesity, uh, rose from around 15% to 26%. It's been a bit more stable over the last few years, but it is already a very significant issue in terms of health impact uh, societally and for individuals. So in the last year for which we have full records, over 11,000 hospital admissions were directly attributable to obesity, uh, but over uh, 870,000 hospital admissions had obesity as a factor. And around 20% of year six children were classified as having obesity, and this is going to feed through, if we do not act, to significant uh, lifelong health problems. This change in obesity over time uh, has been gradual, but uh, and has not gone backwards. Uh, the main measure of obesity is, as I said, body mass index, and this is weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. If people are over 25, that is classified as overweight, and over 30, it's classified as obesity. And these are uh, associated, as I'll come on to later, uh, with uh, health outcomes. So this is not a relative judgment. This is a judgment of what is uh, the body mass uh, at the, uh, index at which health problems start to kick in. This is uh, particularly striking in terms of the steady increase in obesity in older children and especially in the most deprived areas. So if we compare uh, a decade between 2007-8 and 2018-19, uh, and in these data, what we have are in the uh, orange uh, bars, those in living in the most deprived areas, uh, and in the uh, blue bars, those in the least deprived areas, and the darker ones are the later periods. On the left, we have children four to five, and you can see already there is a significant differential where people who are living in areas with more dep deprivation will have higher um, levels of obesity. Uh, and as you go on to year six, this difference is greater. But strikingly, over that time, the amount of obesity has not gone up. If anything, it has actually gone down in those who are least deprived, but it has increased in those who live in areas of greater deprivation. And this finding of a link between childhood obesity and deprivation is a consistent one 
in many high-income countries. We have actually created an environment in which people who are in more deprived areas, if they have a genetic tendency that way, are likely to go on to have the health effects of acquiring obesity at an early age. And this uh, difference is uh, really quite profound. And if we look over time, the difference between the most and least deprived areas in terms of uh, children, both at reception year, but even more by year six, has steadily increased. So the difference, if we go back to 2006, was about 8.5%. The difference uh, more recently is about 15%. So this problem is getting greater, not smaller. And if we look uh, at the map of uh, England, what you see is the uh, index of multiple deprivation on the left, dark colours mean greater deprivation, uh, and the map of childhood obesity uh, at year six are very closely correlated. There isn't an absolute correlation, but uh, where in the country you will find large uh, amounts of obesity in children uh, is heavily predicted by the level of deprivation in that area. And this is particularly uh, striking if you start looking at a rather more uh, small-scale level. This is, uh, these are maps of Blackpool. Blackpool is an absolutely great place Um, uh, many people go to enjoy, uh, as well as those who live there, but also has some of the greatest health challenges uh, in the country. And on the extreme left, uh, what we have is a map of the proportion of children uh, who are younger children, aged four to five, with obesity, and that's uh, in different parts of uh, of the town. But by the time we get to age 10 to 11, this amount of obesity in children really heavily concentrates in particular parts of Blackpool, and if you then look at a map of male life expectancy at birth, which has a huge variation across the town, what you see is the areas with very low life expectancy, so 66 to 73 in red, in adults, very strongly correlate with childhood obesity of children uh, who are 10 to 11. So this is setting up children for a lifetime of ill health. Obesity, of course, doesn't end in childhood. It tends to increase through to uh, late middle age. Uh, And these are just uh, data showing the proportion with obesity and overweight uh, by age, um, uh, uh, men on the left and women on the right. And there is a slight decrease once people uh, get to uh, late uh, late middle age. This is not just a UK problem. If we look globally the prevalence of obesity has gone up really remarkably in every continent. Uh, And if what we have on the left are females and on the right, males, uh, and what has happened uh, since 1975. And as you can see, a steady increase in obesity uh, everywhere. If we then look at a map of um, the world and compare 1975 with uh, 2016, Uh, On the left, we have um, the earlier period, uh, and this shows uh, the proportion of people who are overweight, uh, BMI of over um, 25 kilograms per per metre squared, uh, and uh, very large parts of the world had very low uh, rates of being overweight. Um, If you uh, go on the right, which is the more recent period, uh, the proportion has gone up very substantially in almost every part of the world and in many areas, there are now very high rates of being overweight, particularly 
uh, North and uh, Latin America, um, uh, Europe, uh, parts of North Africa and the Middle East, uh, but uh, increasingly in other areas, including parts of uh, East Asia and Africa. And uh, the same is true uh, if we look at people who have got a higher BMI uh, and are, have, have obesity. Uh, and again, really low rates relative to where we are now. If we went back to 1975, the world looked a very different place at that point uh, in many countries compared to now, where there is really quite substantial amounts in the darker colours of obesity uh, in many parts of the world. Important also to remember that um, uh, overnutrition, too many calories um, through sugars and fats in particular, uh, uh, is the main driver of this, but we still have calorific undernutrition where people have too few calories. Uh, It's always been an issue. It's historically been the consequence of poverty everywhere. So I've illustrated this with the story of Oliver Twist uh, asking for more food. Uh, But there are many countries now which have a double problem, undernutrition in some in terms of calories and overnutrition in terms of calories uh, in others. And in higher income countries, you can often have a situation where people who have obesity also have poor diets, which means they are actually short of particular critical parts of the diet. So it's possible to be overnourished in terms of calories, uh, but undernourished in terms of uh, other parts of the uh, diet that are essential. Obesity causes its health problems uh, in people who have obesity through multiple mechanisms. And I think when people think of this, they just think of, to some extent, the mechanical fact that people are carrying more weight. Uh, And also when people remember uh, lipid, uh, when they look at it under a microscope at school, for example, it looks pretty inert. Actually, mechanical issues are important, but uh, adipose tissue, which is where the lipids are stored, uh, is a very active, metabolically active tissue. It does a large number of uh, different things that change the way the body responds to lots of different uh, parts of the metabolism. This includes insulin resistance, so it changes the way in which the body responds to insulin, which is the main driver of the way uh, glucose and other sugars are handled. It changes several hormones, some of which are hormones which are very important for uh, the control of appetite, so it can become, in a sense, a, a circular problem. Uh, uh, but also important hormones like estrogen, which is a major sex hormone uh, that is important in the metabolism for women and come on to reasons why that has big health implications. Uh, Higher amounts of it can lead to inflammation. Uh, So systems like interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, these are signaling of inflammation. These can be affected by having more adipose tissue. It can affect clotting, and increase the risk of clotting. And it can, of course, affect the lipid metabolism, the way that fats are handled. So having obesity leads to very large numbers of changes in the way that the body handles not just lipids and fats themselves, but a whole uh, array of different things which can have an implication for people's health. The easiest thing, therefore, to explain is the straight physical effects. And I'm now going to go through several of the health impacts of obesity 
uh, so that you can see why it is that this is such a major health issue. There's a very strong association between obesity and osteoarthritis, uh, which is uh, a major erosion uh, of uh, the joints. The knee joints are the most frequently affected because they are highly load-bearing. They bear the weight of the majority of the body. And for every five-unit increase in the body mass index, uh, there's an association with a 35% increase in the risk of knee osteoarthritis and 11% of hip osteoarthritis. In one UK study, for example, uh, 69% of knee replacements and 27% of hip replacements were obesity-related. But there is also an increase in osteoarthritis in joints which are not load-bearing, suggesting there are additional mechanisms. It's not just uh, about physical weight. The next really major issue associated with obesity is diabetes. Uh, Now, within diabetes, there are broadly two types. Uh, Type 1 diabetes, which is much less associated, uh, but type 2 diabetes... Uh, which constitutes around 90% of diabetes in the UK. And the prevalence, how common this is, uh, has risen very rapidly uh, from the 1960s. And the reason for that is the rising uh, tide of obesity. And diabetes has many consequences. The raised blood sugar can be very dangerous in itself in obesity, but it also has indirect effects if it is not treated or prevented, including heart disease, stroke, kidney disease, and eye disease. So this strong drive by increasing obesity to higher diabetes uh, is a very major public health problem. The major risk for type 2 diabetes is being overweight, uh, and this accounts for probably 80 to 85% of type 2 diabetes uh, in the UK. And uh, unsurprisingly, uh, it therefore increases with deprivation, unlike uh, type 1 diabetes. Importantly, where people who have obesity and type 2 diabetes lose weight, the diabetes may often go into remission. So the diabetes comes on with the increase in weight, but can recede uh, if the weight comes down. And if you look around the world, there is a very strong correlation between the areas of the world where there is a high prevalence of obesity. I've illustrated it here with uh, uh, women of 18, uh, but the same will be true of men and at different ages, and raised uh, blood sugar, which is the main marker of obesity. So these are very closely linked uh, everywhere in the world. Then there are very major impacts in terms of heart disease. In general, for every unit of BMI increase, the risk of heart disease or coronary heart disease increases by around 8%. And uh, this is associated with a number of different factors. Uh, Fat, particularly fat around the organs, is associated with raised cholesterol, raised blood pressure, and, of course, the effects of type 2 diabetes. In the case of coronary heart disease, 
the, where the, lip, the uh, fat is is important as well as the fact there is fat at all. And increased weight circumfer waist circumference, uh, which is associated with visceral flat, fat around uh, the belly area, uh, is as important as a predictor of heart disease uh, as actual BMI. So if people have got their fat mainly distributed centrally, that is a higher risk than if it is more uh, peripheral. And this is a particularly high risk for certain ethnic groups, for example, uh, people of South Asian heritage. Also in the cardiovascular system, there is a strong association between obesity and stroke, especially uh, strokes in younger people. And this, again, is strongly associated with increased uh, weight, uh, waist to hip ratios, so central obesity, but also BMI. For example, one study from the USA uh, looking at waist-to-hip ratio uh, showed that for those under 65 years of age, the odds ratio for having a stroke was 4.4. That's a really quite substantial increase. Uh, for those more than 65, there was an increase, but a much smaller one. Other factors tend to become more dominant. Then uh, obesity is associated with several major cancers. I've illustrated this uh, with cancers in women, uh, but uh, there are cancers in both women and men which are obesity-related. So here is a, uh, a, a, a meta-analysis which is looking at uh, risks of obesity uh, with a whole series of major cancers. And some of them have no, no association with obesity at all. But some of them uh, have quite an important one, which include endometrial cancer, uterine cancer, and postmenopausal breast cancer. I put those two together because they are largely driven by hormones, and it is the effect of obesity on the hormonal balance, which is probably the reason why these cancers are more common. Uh, and then esophageal cancer, uh, which is a very dangerous form of cancer with uh, much less good outcome than many other ones, uh, and renal kidney cancer are also associated uh, with obesity. Uh, some of these, the effect is quite small. So, for, ex for example, on postmenopausal breast cancer, it is a relatively small effect, but because it is a very common cancer, this still can have a big public health impact. Moving to the next body system, liver disease, uh, non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease is very common with obesity. So liver disease in the UK is uh, very often associated with alcohol uh, and uh, globally is associated with infection, particularly hepatitis. But obesity is another very major driver of liver disease. Uh, uh, the more dangerous form is something called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH. It can progress on to cirrhosis and to liver cancer. And uh, here it is, in this country, it's the second most common reason why people may need a liver transplant, which is a very major operation. In women who are pregnant, obesity can also be a significant risk for their pregnancy outcomes. Overall, the chance of miscarriage under 12 weeks is about one in five, though miscarriage is relatively common. But if you have a significantly raised BMI, the chance is one in four, so the risk goes up. 
There's also an increased risk of gestational diabetes. This is diabetes that comes on only in pregnancy, uh, of blood clots, which are a risk in uh, pregnancy, of high blood pressure and preeclampsia, and it also can cause difficulties during delivery. So uh, it is obviously something which you would rather people do not go into pregnancy uh, with obesity, although uh, once in pregnancy, they definitely should not be trying to lose uh, weight suddenly. That would not be uh, a good uh, practice. And has been uh, vividly demonstrated, sadly, in the last year, infections, not all infections, but some infections, can be made more common or more dangerous by obesity. And the one that we've seen uh, this really starkly in is COVID-19. There is a very clear association here in the UK and in other countries between obesity and admission to hospital with COVID-19. If they go into hospital, admission to ICU with COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19. And the greater the degree of obesity, the stronger this association is. And it's also clear that countries with more obesity have more deaths from COVID, although this uh, relationship is uh, relatively indirect. So if we look at all cause, causes of mortality, all communicable disease mortality, that's infections, or non-communicable diseases, uh, that's things like heart attacks, strokes, and uh, cancers, with all of them, there is a very clear association between obesity and early mortality. Uh, I've just illustrated this as one study of almost 2 million people who never smoked in a GP database here in the UK. On the left, all-cause mortality. In the middle, communicable. And on the right, uh, non-communicable. And what you have is the BMI. And if uh, people are very underweight, which is a relatively much rarer issue here in the UK, then uh, there is an increased risk. The lowest risk is when people are what in medical terms would be considered to be normal weight. And once people get to being overweight, having obesity, and then having really severe uh, obesity, uh, then the risk of dying early is very substantially increased. And this association between obesity and increased mortality is irrespective of age, gender, smoking status, uh, and a variety of other risk factors. So therefore, as obesity is increased, the risk of premature mortality from people who otherwise would have died much later uh, is steadily increasing. And this, therefore, represents a major future problem for individuals, families, uh, society, and the NHS. So I hope that has laid out the fact that obesity is clearly rising in the UK, clearly rising globally, and has multiple negative health outcomes. So it is a very major public health issue. Now, recognising obesity as a major health issue is obviously easier than tackling it, but we must. Uh, And what I want to spend the second half of this talk talking about is to say that there is a way through this. But it is important that we start from the principle that it is very difficult for people to lose weight and sustain that loss, and they need support. And this is made harder because people who, are over, have, who have overweight uh, and obesity often feel highly stigmatised and often from quite a young age. 
many people, especially those living in areas of deprivation, live in highly obesogenic environments. These are environments which are actually, in a sense, make it much more likely uh, that someone uh, will uh, end up with obesity. There is a tendency uh, in uh, much of the narrative to blame individuals for being relatively overweight or having obesity, which is both unhelpful for them, but is also scientifically uh, wrong. And I think we all would accept that individuals, society, the health services and industry all have a a, a role to play in this. Now, before we go into how you can treat it, I think it's just important to have a very brief um, overview of why is obesity not universal and why has it increased over time? Obesity is obviously crudely calories in and absorbed, that's very important, compared to calories expended in normal life. We have a basic uh, amount of calories that we have to have uh, to maintain uh, normal activity. Now, alongside this, uh, most people, probably almost everybody, not absolutely everybody, enjoys eating. The control of how much we want to eat, uh, satiety, as it's uh, sometimes termed in medical, the medical literature, is highly regulated biologically. And it has a very strong genetic component. So with an infinite amount of food in front of you, Different people will, for largely reasons of genetics, have different points when their body will tell them, actually, you've now had the right amount. And this is a very complicated area because, of course, we're not thinking about this, but we need to have enough food to be able to uh, operate normally, uh, physically and mentally, uh, and not too much so we don't end up with obesity. And this is a very, very delicate balance and if it is slightly unbalanced in one direction, then obesity uh, is likely to follow because it, it not any individual occasion, but it, chain, it, uh, it, uh, is effect, it affects people's uh, intake uh, day after day, uh, year after year. And the key to how much we want to eat is the brain. And especially, but not entirely, uh, an area called the hypothalamus. But there are multiple biological systems that operate on this. And the hypothalamus and the rest of the brain is being given enormous amounts of information and signaling with gut hormones of various sorts, other forms of hormones of different sorts, neurotransmitters, as well as visual and other cues, all of which are, some of which are pushing the need to eat more, some of which are saying, are pushing the need to say stop, and many of which are uh, changing the way in which the body handles food. So this is a very, very complicated system but they operate at the end of the day uh, on the brain and therefore the desire to eat if food is available. Now there is a very strong genetic component to this. At the extreme end, you have something like the very rare uh, Prader-Willi syndrome uh, where a single chromosome, uh, which in this case is chromosome 15, Uh, change can lead to people feeling constantly hungry and they end up with very substantial obesity. But for most people, the control of the principal control of their their preference for how much they eat uh, in terms of satiety, the point at which the body says that's the right amount, uh, are affected by multiple genes. 
Uh, and uh, this is called a polygenic control over, over lots of different genes. And it is a spectrum. There isn't a one or the other. It's a spectrum. So individual variation in obesity can largely, if people have almost infinite amounts of food potentially available, it be explained genetically. And the multiple gut hormones and other food back, back loops are also, therefore, targets for drug uh, treatments. And as I'll come on to, we are beginning to get to the point where actually uh, we can do something to affect this physiological mechanism. Alongside this, several medical conditions, such as hypothyroidism, having low thyroid control, can also cause weight gain. So this is not just a matter uh, of um, how much people are, in a sense, genetically programmed to eat. Uh, it is also uh, a number of other physiological uh, factors can lead to them having higher or lower weight and weight changing at various points in their lives. And because of this uh, genetic uh, factor, but also um, other societal issues, if a mother or a father in a family are overweight uh, or have obesity, uh, then uh, children are more likely to in that family as well. And this is true whether it's the mother or the father and whether it's girls or boys. But there are many exceptions both ways. This is not a, it doesn't follow uh, completely inevitably. And this is both genetic uh, and social in terms of its, uh, its drivers. Gaining weight is driven by, in large part, uh, physiology and genetics. Uh, but when people wish to lose weight or try to lose weight uh, or do lose weight, the body tries to hold on to the weight it had previously gained. So by lifestyle changes, it is possible to lose quite, lose quite significant amounts of weight, largely by cutting down on the number of calories consumed. Um, but the body responds to weight loss by trying to get back to its previous maximum weight. And there are some studies which, for example, suggest that someone who has lost a significant amount of weight can have a prolonged physiological response, like a leaner person uh, who is relatively starving. So the body is telling them, you've got to get back, you've got to eat more. And this can lead to a yo-yoing between people having obesity, uh, losing weight through huge effort of will and actions, uh, but then the body essentially putting huge pressure on them uh, to uh, eat more again to get back up to the previous weight. This is a process called yo-yoing. So this explains, that explains uh, to a large degree why pe different people have different uh, levels of obesity. But why has this changed over time? Uh, and the answer to that is actually societal and to do with the food uh, that is available. Now, the total calories available societally have increased steadily. So uh, on the left, we have uh, relatively uh, long, slightly uncertain, but relatively long uh, records uh, in, in England, for example. Uh, this goes right back to when this college, near when this college was founded, around 1600. And as you can see steadily, and the graph on the left shows for several countries uh, the increase uh, in number of calories available uh, to individuals. And then more recently, some data showing the steady increase in fat supply over time in people's diets. So over time, the number of calories and the number of uh, fat, fat calories uh, have increased uh, over time uh, in every society. And this has happened as 
as uh, countries have become uh, wealthier uh, and more uh, things are available to them. And what, what you can see here in this uh, graph uh, is, the, uh, is on the left, uh, the, the left axis, uh, the proportion of people who are overweight or obese, and on the right axis, the daily calorific supply that's available, and these are multiple countries put on one graph. And what you can see is there's a strong correlation between how many calories are available uh, and the proportion of obesity that's there. So if you put together people who are, have a genetic propensity towards obesity and increasing uh, amounts of calories available, of course, that is one of the ways in which there is a drive upwards in terms of uh, people's levels of obesity overall. But not all food is equally likely to cause obesity for the same number of calories. And ultra-processed food leads to more weight gain per calorie ingested. It's possible to feel full with the same number of calories, but if you have less processed food, relatively, uh, in a sense, simple foods that you might prepare from scratch, uh, you will have, uh, you'll feel full earlier in terms of the number of calories you'll then absorb than you do with the ultra-processed foods, which have very high calorie density, uh, and uh, the, uh, the, break, the, the various ways in which the food is presented is broken down in a way it's more easily absorbed. Uh, and therefore, highly unprocessed foods, uh, and ordinary, in a sense, ordinary foods, uh, fewer, more of the calories simply pass straight through you. The ultra-processed foods, a lot of them will be absorbed. So it's not just the number of calories in, also the way the calories are presented. And this is important uh, to explain why some uh, parts of society are exposed to very large amounts of processed food. And if we compare uh, these two maps in the UK, uh, one of them, for example, uh, the one on the left, is of fast food uh, outlets, density of fast food outlets, and the one on the right is child ob childhood obesity. There isn't an absolute cause and effect, but you can see there is a very strong correlation. So people are, have a significant uh, genetic tendency towards obesity, the amounts of calories available have been steadily going up, and the ultra-processing of foods, which is highly concentrated in areas of deprivation in terms of the foods that are available, uh, are, all of these can help explain why the rates have increased over time. So how do we, uh, we get back from that? Well, there's a role for um, individuals and their families. There's a role for the medical profession, uh, and then there is a role for society. Let's just consider uh, medical practitioners uh, and uh, individuals who they're working with, their patients, uh, their clients. And this is a, a, a slide, one of two, from my first lecture in this series, which, is, which was asking the question, what's the role of the individual, the medical, the medical profession, uh, and the state in terms of prevention uh, of um, uh, disease and prevention of things that lead to disease, including obesity? Primary care physicians, GPs, and specialists have a central role in secondary prevention when someone's already got some uh, evidence of obesity uh, that we can try and help people to uh, reverse that, stabilize that, reverse it, uh, but also to prevent some of the medical problems that can happen as a result of that 
uh, and also uh, treatment. This is based on an individual conversation between a doctor, a nurse, or other practitioner, and uh, their patient or client. Uh, and it is based on individual consent, can involve uh, proper advice on how to uh, not gain weight and then hopefully lose weight, uh, and also may involve prescribing drugs uh, and, in severe cases, surgery. Primary prevention, which is, stopping, is, which is starting from the position before people have got uh, any obesity at all, uh, mainly falls to the state. And the role of the state in obesity is a contested area, and I'm going to deal with that uh, last. Now, if you poll people about how much responsibility, if any, do they think that each of the following have for ensuring that people generally stay healthier, and obesity is only one element of this, uh, what, you will f- what you see over time is there's been a slight increase, actually, over time in the uh, proportion who think that the state has a significant role, national government, uh, local government, but there's a substantial proportion of people who think that uh, there's an important role for the NHS, for national government, for local government, for the individual, and for the food and drinks industry when it comes to obesity. So this is something, a problem, uh, which, in a sense, we should all own and should all uh, try to improve on. Now, the first thing, the most obvious thing, uh, in a way, is to help individuals lose weight, uh, and that is uh, through diet. Sustainable weight loss is possible with substantial benefits. And I gave the example of people whose diabetes comes on because they become obese, and then when they lose weight... Uh, it can go into remission. The key is to have calories or fat intake lower than needed uh, to maintain the current weight. Uh, Around 600 kilocalories a day deficit, difference between expenditure and uh, intake is ideal, but it needs to be nutritionally balanced. If people just uh, go right down without keeping the balance right, um, that's obviously potentially bad for health for different reasons. And of course, it should be enjoyable. Otherwise, it's not going to be sustainable. And actually, this is usually better than ultra-low calorie diets, which can occasionally be useful. But uh, generally, uh, this kind of sustainable weight loss uh, is what people should be aiming for with, with assistance. Exercise uh, is also important, uh, but I think is often seen as uh, more central than it actually is. It plays a very important role, but it's very difficult to lose weight once a person has developed obesity without reducing calories. And to prevent obesity, uh, most people uh, may need to do 45 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity activity a day, and in modern living, for a lot of people, that can be quite difficult. But exercise is essential not only because it is a part of an overall weight approach, but it is also essential for wider health benefits in addition to helping to keep weight down. So exercise is really important, but it cannot be seen as the only thing that people need uh, to maintain a healthy weight and to bring weight down. And it is easier to do more exercise in more affluent areas. That's just a practical reality. And if you look at the amount of physical activity uh, against affluence or deprivation, depending which way you look at it, uh, there is a reasonably strong correlation. And if you uh, go around environments uh, where there is more deprivation, you will see why it is harder to do exercise in many of these environments. 
So those are things people can do and do with support, but remembering this fact that losing weight is difficult, maintaining a weight once it's down is also very difficult. Then you come on to things where medicines can be used, and uh, drug treatment for uh, helping weight loss has until recently been relatively disappointing, but that, I think, is changing, and I think people who are working in the field think it's going to change really quite substantially over the next few years. Drug treatments already exist. Uh, Many of the current ones have limited efficacy or unacceptable side effects. And an example of uh, a drug, for example, that's currently uh, recommended is something called Orlistat, stops around a third of fat being absorbed, passes through, but it can have quite significant uh, side effects uh, for people, for many people, not for everybody. So useful for some people, but this this can be uh, uh, problematic for many others. But increasingly, uh, it is likely that drugs will be based more on the hormonal control of uh, weight, and these are the hormones in particular from the gut, which are part of this cycle where the body tells the brain, actually, this person has probably eaten enough, or this person needs, uh, you, know, you need to eat more. And the most recent one, uh, I think a very exciting uh, advance, actually, uh, is a drug called semaglutide, which is a glucagon-like peptide. This is, this is one of the gut hormones. Uh, it's, it's like one of those. Uh, it's been used in type 2 diabetes, but it's recently been shown to have benefit in terms of helping weight come down and then be sustained. And it does this by reducing appetite. It basically signals to the brain that this person has eaten enough. Now, you might worry that once people are on it, the weight will carry on just falling away and falling away. Actually, other mechanisms uh, kick in. So what we've seen on this, and this is a trial that came out actually this year, Uh, in England Journal, uh, what you can see is a significant uh, change from baseline in terms of the percentage weight, and then it stabilizes. So here's an example, and hopefully there will be many more, uh, of a drug uh, mimicking part of the natural process by which appetite is is controlled, uh, which can help bring weight down and then maintain it. But I think we're a long way from using these in a widespread way. These are very much for people who have significant degrees of obesity uh, and uh, the potential for getting into very serious health problems. The most invasive treatment that doctors can uh, provide is surgery, bariatric surgery. And there are several forms of this, but broadly three uh, types. Gastric bands, which are a band around the stomach, which helps people uh, by, because it, may, it means they essentially can't eat as much uh, to feel full. But there are two other ones, gastric bypass, where the top part of the stomach is joined to the small intestine, uh, or what's called a sleeve, sleeve gastrectomy, where some of the stomach is removed and then re-plumbed. And this, uh, actually, the principal way this works is by changing the way in which the signals from the gut, the hormones from the gut, regulate appetite and glucose. People start to lose weight uh, sustainably uh, really quite fast with these. But as with all um, operations, uh, there are risks and there are side effects. So this is not a way you would wish to deal with uh, people who have obesity uh, unless uh, they've really got to a point where other things have proved ineffective. And the effects of gastric surgery uh, are that people with severe obesity uh, can go on to lose quite significant amounts of weight, often very rapidly, and then it stabilizes. And if, for example, they have type 2 diabetes, this can often resolve 
uh, and the reduction in blood sugar be maintained. So this can have really significant uh, long-term positive health effects. Unsurprisingly, given that the environments which have a tendency to uh, promote obesity are in areas of greater deprivation, there is a very strong correlation between uh, the need for bariatric surgery and areas of deprivation. Over three times more likely in most deprived areas. Uh, and this is an operation which tends to uh, be needed for people in their middle ages. So those are things individuals can do, families can do, uh, medical practitioners on an individual basis can do for people with significant obesity. The final thing to consider uh, is state intervention. And the other slide from the first talk I gave in this series uh, was the idea of the ladder of possible state intervention. Starting from very uncontroversial areas where uh, things like supporting science to test possibilities, testing out, for example, whether various drugs for people with significant obesity uh, are effective, informing the public or information, uh, engaging with industry and saying, look, could you please try and work with us to help these? These are relatively limited use of state uh, powers. Mass voluntary programs are rather less relevant to obesity. But then you get into areas where state powers are being used uh, rather more, uh, and those include nudge taxes or interventions where you put a relatively small tax or intervention to try and change behaviour. Regulation, more heavy taxation that is actually really designed to change behaviour in quite a profound way, as, for example, the taxation on cigarettes and uh, higher-strength alcohol. Uh, outright banning or making individuals subject to civil or criminal law. And I think in... in uh, Society, there would be a widespread view that the top end of the ladder of state intervention would not be appropriate uh, for these uh, areas. But the question is, what are the things that the state should be doing to help support people and support society to reduce the amount of obesity a number of people uh, who uh, are, have overweight? And this inevitably has to be decided by politicians as representatives of society. This is not a medical decision. This is a, ultimately a political decision. But I think there are some things which can help us to work out uh, the best way to potentially address this. The first thing is just to be absolutely straightforward. Uh, hospital admissions directly attributable uh, to obesity or where it is a factor are a very, very major part of NHS work. They increase very substantially by deprivation and they have increased over time. So this is a problem for all of society as well as for the individuals uh, who are having the uh, medical effects of obesity. Second broad principle, I think, is that um, if someone has a propensity to obesity or being overweight, uh, we, the pub we the public should recognise that they are consistently being bombarded not only with their own body telling them you want to eat a little bit more, but by huge marketing and advertising uh, and uh, foods being put out which have incredibly high calorific value. Uh, and uh, this is just a photograph from my local supermarket. And these are all rows of uh, shells which essentially are just sweet or fatty uh, products. And we need to engage with the food industry on this as society as a whole. 
Because pleasure, which, every, which people get from eating, profits for the companies and health are not mutually incompatible. But currently, they're seen to be in tension. And we need a different approach if we wish to reverse back to where we were before, uh, where obesity was much less of an issue. And you know, just to give some examples of the kinds of things which really, if you're trying to tackle obesity, would really not be what you'd be wanting. Here are sponsorship in UK sports. And uh, many of the uh, companies that are, are, are in this, uh, or all the companies that are there, uh, sell foods that people want, but they are very high calorie, often calorie dense foods. Uh, and they're associating it with sport, which is actually an un unhelpful uh, thing to associate it with, particularly for younger people. So the aim should not be to reduce enjoyment, or indeed profits, uh, but to reduce unnecessary energy, uh, in particular sugars and fats, uh, but also remembering that ultra-processed foods can increase weight with the same calories. And this is perfectly possible to do. Uh, I've illustrated here two things I enjoy, among many, uh, Greek yogurts uh, and uh, colas. Uh, there's a huge difference in terms of the energy uh, in the two yogurts that are here. One has zero grams of fat, the other has quite substantial amounts of fat. They taste slightly different. Uh, and on the right, uh, different forms of cola uh, with the amount of sugar and sugar lumps which they have inside them. And so if you're having uh, a full sugar uh, cola, you are uh, taking in a very large amount of sugar um, uh, indeed. So if we're going to try to deal with these, we're going to have to use multiple interventions, each with a modest incremental impact. And we don't yet know the optimal mix. And I think there is no country in the world which has got this uh, absolutely licked. This is a serious problem uh, which every country is um, struggling with. And because of the fact that the way we all uh, interact with food varies enormously by different uh, cultural environment, the solutions will be different in different places. But examples of possible state interventions include things like traffic light labeling of high calorie foods, restricting direct advertising to children, restricting sports advertising of high calorie low nutritional foods, restricting fast, fast food outlets near schools, sugar lev levies on the highest calorie soft drinks, lower taxes on lower calories. That's in a sense putting the incentive the other way. These would all require some use of state powers, and this has got to be a political question. And I think that the best way to do this in a way that is least uh, difficult for individuals uh, is to actually have a small intervention over a very wide sweep, rather than expecting one intervention simply to solve this problem. There's often a sense that we can't really change things, uh, but I'm just going to finish with an example where that clearly is not true. So over the last few years, there have been voluntary agreements in the UK uh, between um, government and the food industry. Um, these have had some effects, but overall, in areas where there's a voluntary interaction, in many areas, the amount of sugar, for example, um, has hardly changed. In fact, in a few cases, it's gone up. There's some particular areas where things have improved, like breakfast cereals and yogurts and spreads have seen significant falls, but in many other areas, there's really been no change at all. 
But there was an example uh, of a, over the same time, of a very small levy, sugar levy, on the higher sugar drinks, uh, uh, the soda, soda drinks. And this is just to show that these uh, next uh, two slides are just to show uh, what the impact of that was. And there was a lot of people said, well, this will lead to people not uh, wanting to drink these. Uh, actually, what it led to was drinks companies largely reformulating to reduce the amount of sugar in their uh, drinks so that they came below the sugar levy uh, threshold. And the result of that was that sales either stayed the same or increased in terms of the amount of uh, colas that were consumed. Uh, and you can see that on the right here. That's the total sales uh, of these um, using Public Health England data. And this is in every uh, socioeconomic group. But the amount of sugar consumed really substantially reduced by 35%. So um, it reduced from over 135,000 tonnes to uh, just over 87,000 tonnes uh, over this relatively short period by really quite a small uh, incentive by the sugar levy. And therefore, if you look at sales-weighted average total sugar through uh, uh, fizzy drinks or colas of different sorts, uh, what you see is a really substantial difference between 2015 and 2019 over the period that this had an effect. So here's an example where a very small state intervention didn't actually affect the market, didn't affect people's, uh, affect people's ability uh, to have sugary drinks, but did significantly reduce the number of calories. Alone, that will have a modest effect. But if you do lots of things with effects of sizes of this sort, then you will end up with us being able to go back down the curve uh, where uh, obesity has been rising, we can go back to a situation where obesity stabilises and then is falling. So in summary, obesity has increased and in many parts of the world is increasing. Uh, this lecture has covered the epidemiology of obesity, showing it's increasing really globally. The health impacts, which are multiple across very many body systems, Interventions at an individual level where we're going, we are already seeing uh, new interventions, new drugs, for example, uh, but I think we're going to see a significant improvement uh, in these over the next years. And interventions at a societal level showing that it is possible to have an effect which actually can lead to a reduction uh, in people's intake of calories, uh, whilst at the same time they can continue to have the foods and drinks they want. It's a problem, it's a growing problem, we need to tackle it, uh, but there is a way through, both at the individual level and at the societal level. Thank you very much. <laughs>